Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If you are still trying to figure out what to do with your life, you are the property of Satan. You are trapped. You are caught in a snare because it is not your life. You have already heard the gospel. You know what you have to do. You have to choose a side. There is no middle ground. There is no twilight between light and dark. Neoplatonic expressions like both sideism and moral equivalency are satanic, a lie of the devil. You have to choose a side. As I speak, every 10 minutes a child's murder is justified by an egotistical 19th century European theology born out of a settler colonial King James translation of the biblical text. It is a settler colonial text rendered in Anglo-Saxon by the court of a settler colonial king who sought to justify the theft, dispossession, exploitation, and murder of Native Americans. Previously, European theology resulted in the barbaric and brutal persecution of our beloved Jewish brothers and sisters for centuries. These are facts. For those who are baptized into Jesus Christ, there is only one side. The judgment of God our Father, which is against you and against me. This God, the God of Scripture, does not speak Anglo-Saxon or write with vowels. In view of these facts, you must choose a side. You must take a stand on the content of the biblical text. You must write a book dealing with the content of the biblical text. You must start a podcast reading aloud the content of the biblical text. You must write an article exegeting the content of the biblical text. This has nothing to do with your career choices, life goals, dreams, or what you do for a living. When you talk this way, you sound like a navel-gazing, self-serving, money-loving, settler colonial. What of the children in Sudan? Do they have dreams? Or is Sudan only a tourist stop on a checklist for impressive Ivy League resumes? Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one will bear his own load. Each one of us must pick up our own shovel. 
I am speaking to each and every individual person who hears this podcast. This is a personal message to you. Take it personally. Be angry with me if you must. Your programs, activities, groups, mailing lists, ideals, altruisms, associations, parties, clubs, nonprofits, whatever, all of it is vanity. Are you objectively teaching and spreading the objective content of the biblical text against anthropocentrism, ignorance, fundamentalism, fanaticism, political and religious ideology, philosophy, theology, colonialism, and greed? Or are you promoting your own version of the same? In other words, are you promoting yourself by building your resume? Are you teaching the content of scripture? Are you writing? Are you going through scripture verse by verse? Are you studying biblical languages? Are you teaching biblical languages? What are you doing? At this hour, plenty of people are expending a ton of energy and wealth to propagandize hate. Worse, they are expending even more energy and wealth to co-opt scripture to propagandize genocide. Rightly, did St. Paul speak of those who have received knowledge but refuse to work when he proclaimed, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of those who know but do not teach. 1,200 children have died in the past five months in Sudan, and at least 5.8 million people have been displaced since April due to civil war. More than 500 children have been killed and 1,000 injured in Ukraine since the start of the war, and 11 million Ukrainians have been displaced. At the time of this recording, 5,000 children that we know of have been killed in Gaza. Almost 9,000 were injured and 1.4 million, 70% of all Palestinians living in Gaza have been displaced. Meanwhile, the U.S. Congress universities, colleges, and public institutions, along with the majority of the European powers, continue to debate whether or not it is racist to call for a ceasefire. Those of you who listen to this podcast know better. Forget politics. You know what scripture teaches. What are you doing to spread the content of God's teaching? Not to give your feedback on how it could be done better, what other people should do, or what your priest should do. What are 
you doing with your own hands? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 7. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 508 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Many of our hearers have noticed that I've repeatedly been introducing Hebrew words via the Septuagint and their Arabic cognates, even and perhaps especially in our handling of the New Testament, which is a Greek text, to take seriously that the Bible is a Semitic project. We're working on a Greek text in which the Greek language is primary in the sense that the terminology that Luke uses has to be understood in its usage functionally against other Greek terminology in the New Testament. But it is not used Hellenistically. It is used Semitically. So its functionality, even in the Greek, has to be understood against the backdrop of the functionality of Semitic terminology, which means that even when you understand how a Greek word is used in the Septuagint, it's ultimately incomplete unless you go back to the usage of the Semitic triliteral. And this is ultimately where Hebrew is the reference and the Arabic language is useful. And this is what I am working on personally in my own research since completing Dark Sayings. This is something that I am now committed to. I was deeply impressed by the work of one Jewish rabbi in particular that I discovered who was a very important scholar from Al-Andalus in the Middle Ages, who also, as Father Paul has said many times, saw the importance of the Arabic language of the Quran for understanding the consonantal Hebrew of the Old Testament. Father Paul's not the first person to say this. So look, there's something there, and this is the work I'm committed to, which gives me an opportunity as a student to push myself to work on the Hebrew and to work on the Arabic, which my deep conviction is essential for hearing the original consonantal Hebrew because of the special value of the Arabic language. At the same time, go back and hear Father Paul's presentation in Lebanon. If you are a speaker of the Arabic language, you cannot be lazy because the Arabic translation of the Hebrew in all of the Arabic Bibles that are used throughout the Middle East it's terrible. It's as bad as the King James because they do the same thing everyone does. They render the original Semitic as meaning instead of function. Forget this postmodern narrative nonsense. The work of hearing scripture 
is about the archaeology of a text, not a story. So I've been making the effort on each episode as I'm studying these languages to bring, where possible, Hebrew terminology and through a study of the triliteral root, where applicable or potentially useful, the Arabic. And I was very excited last week, Richard, about this interconnection between the triliteral RBB, resh, bet, bet, re, be, be, and this word rabbi in Hebrew, and of course the word in Arabic, yarab, O Lord. This connection between the word for Lord and the word for teacher is very powerful. And to be able to share that knowledge while we're hearing the teaching of the Gospel of Luke was, for me, joyous. In my own background, obviously the Semitic matrix that this all comes from is primary. My PhD is in Hebrew and Semitic studies. In my PhD program, I focused on Hebrew, but I also studied Aramaic, Syriac, Akkadian. I minored in Arabic, trying to get as much Semitic linguistics under my belt as possible and in attacking this text. One of the tricks you run into is sometimes you're dealing with a text and you're not sure yet what language it is. And then you might discover what the language is, and then you find out there's no dictionary for that. So what do you do? You do what we find in footnotes. You find what's in your dictionary glosses. We have similar roots in other contexts that mean this. Does that work here? How did people decipher what Ugaritic was? I mean, first, they had to figure out what the alphabet was, and that was hard. Once they realized that, then they could start trying to understand what the words are. But then they'd find that there's a root in Ugaritic that sounds like one in Hebrew, that sounds like one in Arabic, but it doesn't make sense in context. Or do they not understand the context? And so then they would have to make an argument, here's what we think it means in this context in Ugaritic, based on what we know from Hebrew and Arabic. Ultimately, the goal is to understand what the Ugaritic text is saying. And you use Hebrew and Arabic as tools to understand what this text is saying. When we are reading Luke, when we're reading the New Testament, it's written in Greek. So whatever we do has to serve the Greek text. It's very helpful to understand where this is coming from, because sometimes we find New Testament writers are drawing very clearly from the tradition of how Septuagint was speaking. So, for example, referring to Torah as nomos, law. That's already very common in the Septuagint, and Paul is doing this all the time. Is there an actual connection between Torah and nomos, those, those words? Maybe not, but the way that the Septuagint writers were translating it, that's what it means in the Septuagint, and Paul is drawing from that. So when we hear law in English, we have to realize that it's a translation of the Greek, and if Paul is using it, Paul is drawing on a tradition from the Septuagint, which decided to translate Torah as nomos. So we have to be aware of these different links as we're going through. But if we want to understand why the Septuagint translators would use nomos instead of saying didaskalia or something like that, which is teaching, 
we need to go into, okay, what exactly does Torah mean and understand the triliteral root, yara, and then see where it appears elsewhere to understand what we're dealing with in the Hebrew text. So we have different layers of texts and different layers of languages. The other point is that Greek functions in the Old Testament and the New Testament differently. In the New Testament, Greek is primary. In the Old Testament, Greek is secondary. It is translating from the primary Hebrew and Aramaic texts. As we're reading with these different languages, we have to really be aware of the contours of how things fit together. We're trying to offer a guide to understanding what these texts are saying in the language they're written in. What are Simon and Jesus talking about on this boat? And we can go very deep into the words that they're using to speak with each other according to what Luke wrote. Why Luke talked about an epistatis instead of a kyrios or instead of a didaskalos. These are important choices that Luke is making among the Greek words that he could use for this. And then we tied that back to how epistatis is used in the Old Testament, and that gives us insight into what is happening on this boat in Luke. The way that we study these languages, the way that we allow these languages to fill our ear with this teaching, we want to be as sensitive as possible to what the words are saying in order to grasp the context of the text we're looking at. We're not trying to build theology. We're not trying to build universal principles or anything like that. We're trying to understand the Bible as literature. In a society that feels like it's crumbling, and I want to say it as dispassionately as possible. I mean, we live in a society where it's okay for a politician to say openly that the solution to a political problem is to wipe out an entire population. I mean, this was actually said by a politician in our society this week, and it was allowed to be said. And in the same week, another politician was censured for calling for a ceasefire. So when I say things like we're in a society that's crumbling, it may sound like hyperbole to you, but it's not. It's, it's actually a statement of fact. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Okay, something is really wrong. In a society like that where those two things are factual, someone can call for the extermination of an entire people and go unchecked, and the one who calls for a ceasefire is censured publicly. Something's wrong. And if you can't see that or understand that, something's wrong with you. In that setting, people are unimpressed by the sharing of facts. That's what's wrong. So there will be times when Richard and I will share a piece of information that isn't game-changing because that's what knowledge is. You don't spend an entire lifetime sweating in the dark to produce the rise of Scripture 
you don't do that because every single fact you discover is flashy and sexy. This needs to be said, like much of the work of study is boring. The more you know, the more you know. And much of what you know as you know more is boring. So it's important sometimes to uncover knowledge that isn't exciting or breakthrough knowledge on its own, but it's part of accumulating information that you write down in the margin that over time becomes very important. So that's also part of this. You share information that later on becomes very significant. So that's why this business of doing the archaeology of words as we explore, as we go on this expedition in the world of the Bible is critical. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. This word, bethizo, of course, Richard reminds me of baptism because we're talking about drowning them. It appears in Exodus and more importantly, it appears in First Timothy. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Plunge, bethizome, it's the same word. So here's an example where functionality within the Greek and functionality within the Greek Septuagint are primary. So this word is not the same as baptizo. It's a different root. It's not vapt. It sounds similar. So if you were making the argument on the basis of meaning, you would say, well, both can mean to immerse or to sink. Vith means also to immerse or sink. But you can't argue on the basis of the meaning of words. This is someone who's dealing on the basis of narrative or story. You argue on the basis of function. This word, bethizo, appears only twice. In Luke once and in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And then it's usage in the Septuagint that I referred to, which appears both in Exodus and in the Psalter. But in the way that Paul uses it, as we just heard, it is a negative connotation. So here, if we take into consideration its use in the Old Testament, which refers to sinking in the Nile, which is negative, and Paul's usage in the letter to Timothy, which is the ruin that comes upon those who want to get rich and fall into temptation, then we have to understand it here negatively. Yeah, we have this theme of Jesus leaving the land in order to head to the deep. And this is the place, like I said before, that Jonah was crying out to leave because it was sure death. Jesus gives them so much success that they themselves are heading to the deep. The ship that 
Simon is on isn't even the only one in danger. When he brings in his friends, he puts his friends in danger because of so much success and so much riches. And this just reminds me what we read in Hosea that the more they multiplied, Rabu, the more they sinned. And this is the problem. The more that they succeed, is what's given to them. It's not at the work of their own hands. It's what's given to them. But as the human being becomes richer, the more they sink into their own sins, they sink into their own death because they start to think that they're responsible for this. Just as when the children of Israel were in Sinai, when they were wandering and they received the manna, they thought, oh, now that we have so much manna, we have to make sure that we gather plenty of manna just in case God doesn't do what he needs to do next time, in case God doesn't come through, in case God doesn't do his job. Here they have so much fish, they're heading to death. They're so rich, they're so plentiful, they can't handle it, literally. They need their friends to help them, and then they're all in danger. So they have to cry out to Jesus and ask for his help. This is the correct response when one is receiving bounty from the Lord, not to go into one's own ego and into one's own sin, which is what Hosea is warning against, that they must cry out to God. Jesus heads out to the depth grants blessings, but the blessings are so great that those receiving them must cry out to Jesus to save them from the very blessings that they've received. We have this dynamic happening on this ship that we'll see play out further on, but already Simon is nervous at what he's getting so far, and we'll see soon enough how much it shakes him to his core to see what he's received. Luke is making Hosea functional and is, in fact, making this notion of the teacher, the Lord, not the abundance of the catch itself, the reference. Again, it makes sense in the flow, not just of Luke, but in the flow of Luke-Acts. And it bears constant repeating that in the book of Acts, which God willing we will hear later on this podcast, it is the way that is increased not the church. The notion that the church is increased by evangelization is the mentality of the children of Cain. In modern parlance, it is a colonial mentality. Both the soil and the seed are the purview of Elohim. You can lay no claim on anything you are just commanded to teach. Everything pertains to the one who provides both the seed and the soil. Are you kidding me? Which means that the Lord is the one who increases. We have to get this through our thick skull. It's such a powerful example. And if you increase, as you said, Richard, you sink. <laughs> It's, it's quite it's actually quite beautiful it's it's really a powerful text so with that in mind let me just take the opportunity to wrap up with some archaeology of the text and i'll start just by dealing directly with 
terminology, looking at the Greek, the Hebrew, and then the cognate. Take, for example, metochos, which is the word for partners in the Greek. Tis metochis. They signal to their partners. This corresponds to the Hebrew, haber, which means friend, associate, companion, and corresponds to, very interestingly, the Arabic cognate, heber, or haber, which means ink. Habara means ink, but it can also mean a scholar or authority highly regarded for knowledge. Again, it's just a fact. It may be a boring fact, but, you know, we're talking about the others who are assigned to teach. Their job is to become the fishers of men. So when you consider the cognate in the Semitic, they are associates, they are companions, whose responsibility is to function as a teacher. And this cognate in the Semitic implies a rabbi or even an imam in everyday usage. So that's an interesting fact just to write down on the margin. The second example of a word doing the archaeology of the text here in verse 7, and it's important, people breeze through these texts. Just doing the work on one verse is worth more than one episode, and this is something for those who have been listening to the Bible as Literature podcast for years. This is something for you to consider in your own work on the biblical text. And remember, the study of the biblical text, as I said in the intro, is a life and death matter. The second example is this word, silamvano, which is translated help to silaveste. This is a terrible translation because the word in Greek can mean, on its own in Greek, it can mean to collect, to capture or arrest, but also to conceive, as in to give birth. And it can mean to conceive literally or figuratively. In the epistle of James, he actually uses it in chapter 1 to talk about lust conceiving when it gives birth to sin. So it's a term that can definitely have a negative connotation. And in hearing verse 7 in chapter 5 of Luke, knowing that the word bethesaste definitely has a negative connotation, you can't just assume hearing it in English that, oh, isn't it nice that they came to help them? That's why it breaks down when you just hear it as a narrative. You cannot do the archaeology of a story. It is the archaeology of a text. So the word in Hebrew, tapas, which again, once you look at the Septuagint and how the authors of the authoritative consonantal Hebrew rendered the consonantal Hebrew in Greek, which is the text upon which Luke depends, you see that this word Tapas is how the word silamvano is frequently translated. You can then look at the related word in Arabic because the Hebrew means to seize, take hold of. 
And this word in Arabic, batash, which means to attack or to fall upon suddenly or forcefully, batash biquwa, this aligns to the same word in Greek. So here's a case where there is a usage in Greek which has a negative connotation to capture or arrest. It is used that way in the Septuagint, and you have a related word in Arabic that reinforces this usage. And then you consider the implication in Luke and the fact that in the text of Luke itself, we are hearing that there is a problem with the vanity of the increase. And we're hearing from the text of Luke itself through the terminology that something's wrong. What does it mean to help? In English, you hear the word help and you hear it positively. But when you hear the Greek, even just the Greek of Luke, it's not so clear that what's going on here as they approach the deep is positive. So you have to consider the negative implication of the terminology, which comes out more forcefully when you look at the triliteral and the cognate. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.